you, Nancy, for that. And um, it's a pleasure to be back with you all. All of a sudden, we find ourselves at the end of Jonah's story. Four weeks, four chapters, lots and lots to chew on for those of us that have ears to hear. Now, I know this wasn't the first trip through Jonah for many of you. Uh, For one, lots of you probably grew up reading about the story in your children's Bible, right? I mean, how could it not be included? A fleeing prophet, a raging storm, pagan sailors, that if you exercise a little creative license can be pirates. A man-eating whale, an evil city that turns, that repents on a dime. What's not to love? What's not to capture for our imaginations in the story? In fact, I'd be willing to bet that many of us have encountered the book of Jonah through the same lens that it's presented in the book that's going to be up on the screen. This is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's a children's Bible. Pictures probably gave that one away. Uh, And I'll just say it is an excellent resource for those of you who have kids. Uh, We've loved using it with our daughters so far. And I think it's especially good because it shows how each story in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Christ, how, it, how he is the way that every story, that every theme in Scripture finds its proper ending. And indeed, with the Jonah story, it does exactly that. It talks about how Jesus was the one who came in a greater way than Jonah did, rising from three days in the grave and preaching repentance in a way that helps us see our need to repent. And that's outstanding and so true and so good. But you know what? As much as I love and would commend this book, I have to be honest. With all due respect, I would say that the Jesus Storybook Bible completely misses the boat when it comes to the full message of Jonah. And you want to know why? Because it completely omits the fourth chapter of the book and its retelling. Now, I know, I know, you should... Never be too hard on a children's Bible for exegetical accuracy, right? I I hear you. But here's the problem. The drama and the action and the hype of the book are found in the first three chapters, right? That's where all the energy is. But the message of the book, the message is found most powerfully and most concisely in the fourth. It's there that we really come to understand the book as a whole, and the lessons that it seeks to convey for us. We said in week one that the main purpose of God in the story of Jonah is to get Jonah to better understand grace. And we went on to say, based on the fact that we are all Jonah in more ways than we care to admit, that the main purpose of God in this book is to get us to better understand grace that we might actually gradually live more and more in light of that grace, becoming more and more like Christ. And so today, that overall purpose manifests in a particular call for each of us to grasp this central truth. The more we truly understand God's grace shown to us sinners, the more we will reflect God's compassionate character in our hearts and lives. I want to repeat that. The more we truly understand God's grace shown to us as sinners, the more we will reflect God's compassionate character in our hearts and lives. 
Okay, we're going to see this truth on vivid display before us this morning, particularly by contrasting Jonah's unveiled anger in verses 1 to 4 with God's unrelenting compassion in verses 5 through 11. So let's start by examining once again the heart of this reluctant yet successful prophet whose anger is revealed by the way the Lord had blessed his ministry of preaching to a people who were Israel's sworn enemies. Remember, the context is that the idolatrous, downright evil city of Nineveh had repented in mass. 120,000 people, from the least to the greatest, and the Lord had determined, because of their repentance, not to bring judgment of disaster upon them. Now, as we look at these first four verses, I think it's good to start by acknowledging that there are lots of very understandable reasons why we might be angry at God, right? They may not be defensible in the long run, but they are certainly understandable. We might be angry with God when we lose someone close to us or fail to see a prayer answered or experience some horrific injustice or just feel like our life just isn't going according to plan. Maybe that God has even abandoned us. But in Jonah's case, I think most of us find ourselves scratching our heads a little bit here. Why on earth would Jonah be angry with God after the wonderful work he just allowed him to be a part of? But of course, we we already have our answer, don't we? Something is still seriously wrong with Jonah. And just in case it wasn't clear, the reason why Jonah is exceedingly displeased, even angry with God, is that God had graciously granted repentance to the Ninevites, enemies of God's people, through his preaching. And amazingly, the whirlwind of activity that has characterized the book so far comes to a standstill in these verses, like the waters after a storm. And now, we get to dive even deeper into Jonah's heart and his relationship with the Lord. That's what this chapter explores. Verse 1 helps us sum up what it is we see bubbling up out of Jonah's heart here at this now much quieter moment, and that's extreme displeasure and anger. And this isn't just Jonah getting a little hot under the collar. I mean, Jonah is furious here. The Hebrew in verse 1 could not be more emphatic. Jonah was as angry and displeased with God as he could be. And the prayer he offers up in verse 2 to 3 is just seething with outrage and bitterness and self-pity. How different is this prayer than Jonah's previous one, right? For in chapter 2, Jonah prayed out of thanksgiving because he, one of God's chosen people, was delivered from a watery grave, right? But here, because God delivered an entire city of pagan people from a similar fate, Jonah prays not out of a thankful heart for the powerful manifestation of God's grace as he should have, but out of a frustrated and even outraged spirit that God would deliver the wicked Ninevites from the destruction he believes they deserve. And the worst thing is, the prayer is telling of what has been happening in Jonah's heart all along. Look at verse 2 again. It's as if Jonah is saying to God something like this. See, Lord, I knew the whole time you were going to do something exactly like this. 
Jonah tells us here that the reason he fled to Tarshish in the first place was because he knew when he received the call to go and preach to Nineveh that God was going to be gracious to them by the end of it all. He knew that would happen because God had revealed again and again throughout the Old Testament that he was a Lord who was gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. He fled because he knew the God he served had this kind of character, and there was no way he was going to willingly be a part of that compassionate character coming into contact with the evil empire of the ancient world. And see, the offense of God's grace being shed on pagan, idolatrous, wicked Nineveh is so grievous to Jonah, so grievous in Jonah's eyes that it brings us back to the same wish for death that we saw in chapter 1. Do you remember that? Look again at verse 3. Jonah says, Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to to die than to live. Wow. (laughs) One person rightly summarized the deplorable situation unfolding here like this. He said, A world in which God forgives even Israel's enemies is a world Jonah does not wish to live in any longer. But look at God's response in verse 4. The Lord, after seeing Jonah's displeasure and hearing the accusatory prayer, comes right up alongside of him, as it were, tenderly, gently asking him a question which cuts right to the heart of the matter. The ESV has it as, do you do do well to be angry? But I like the way the NIV puts the question, is it right for you to be angry? Or, do you have a right to be angry? And essentially, I think the issue that God raises with Jonah here, if I could summarize it in one word, is the issue of idolatry. Idolatry, the worship of false gods rather than the one true God. Now, why do I say that? Well, listen to what Tim Keller reminds us about idols. He says that, among other things, an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Well, isn't that what we have going on here with Jonah? Something has happened to him that makes him feel as if life is no longer worth living. So what was it? Well, I think it was the fact that Jonah's idol was toppled. An idol that seems to be none other than Jonah himself. Jonah being on the throne rather than God. See, Jonah functionally worshipped a God made in his own image. One who would distribute grace in judgment in a way that conformed with Jonah's self-righteous estimations. And when the course of these events revealed that the one true God wasn't beholden to Jonah's perception of who was worthy of grace and compassion and who wasn't? Once it was clear that the God of the Bible was not the God Jonah thought or hoped he was, well, life was practically over for him. Not much worth living for in Jonah's estimation there because his idol, what he had been living for, was crushed. Now, before we're too quick to condemn Jonah here, we do well to remember our mantra for this book, right? What's our mantra? We are Jonah. We are Jonah. So what does that mean? What does Jonah's heart struggle and idol exposure reveal about us here? 
Well, to ask that question is essentially asking where those places are where we become sinfully frustrated or angry at God when His will is done rather than our own. See, for us, we're not angry that the Lord granted repentance to the Ninevites, right? At least I don't don't think we are. I, I hope every one of us here is just thrilled that this city has experienced the grace and compassion of God, right? But you know what? That's ultimately a gimme for us, right? Why? Because none of us have a stake anymore in the fate of the ancient Assyrians, however evil the rumors are that we hear about them. None of us living almost 3,000 years later have anything to lose or gain from whether they experience grace or judgment, right? And so their fate doesn't possibly threaten any of our idols, any of our false visions of who God is and how we think He should act. We're not threatened by how God acts in this book. No, we've got to look a little closer to home if we have any chance of sounding out the idols in our own hearts rather than simply condemning the idols that ruled Jonah's heart and were exposed in Nineveh's salvation. If we return to our thought experiment from last week and ask how we might feel about the grace and compassion of God being shed upon neo-Nazis or ISIS members, the womanizer or the pedophile, the career abortion doctor or the dedicated sex trafficker, we might start to see a little bit more how our hearts are actually quite like Jonas. But ultimately, our day-to-day idolatries can be found not so much in those extreme cases, although they are revealed there, but mainly in the way we think about others, any others who live and think and act very differently than we do. Tim Keller, in his book on Jonah that we've recommended here as a part of this series, puts his finger right on this point when he says this. The final verses of the book tell us that the mark of those who have been immersed in the grace of God is compassion and love, not contempt for people who aren't like us. Now, if there's one arena of our lives where it is crystal clear that there are people who aren't like us, (laughs) it is the political arena. Am I right? I don't have to remind you the divisions and fragmentation that exist in our country, in our city, in our church when it comes to politics. Especially because you've probably been reminded of that fact almost every day since President Trump was elected. And midterm elections on Tuesday have only amplified the evident discord. Keller says of this, We are encouraged from biased news media to explosive social media to demonize and mock those people over there. Each region of the country and political party finds reasons to despise the others. So true. But tragically, he goes on to note this. He says, Christian believers today are being sucked into this maelstrom as much, if not more, than anyone else. And the book of Jonah, he says, is a shot across the bow. God asks us through the book, this is Keller still, how can we look at anyone 
even those with deeply opposing beliefs and practices, with no compassion. How can we do that? Do you see what Keller is saying here? He's saying the book of Jonah has direct implications for how we as believers think about the political other, especially the political other right here within the walls of this church. He's saying, I think rightly, that if you find yourself, maybe never out loud, but in your heart of hearts, despising and demonizing and mocking those on the other side of the political spectrum, well, it actually exposes that you aren't really worshiping the God of the Bible at that point. You're worshiping some other God of your own design. Now, that's tough stuff. And it's going to run directly against the grain of what you and I are going to hear on talk radio or NPR, Fox News, or CNN. But that's because Christians and the church should look different than the surrounding culture in terms of our political discourse, shouldn't we? If we're just imitating the world and the way it thinks about politics and outmaneuvering the other, whether bigoted or naive, then then how are we being salt and light in that arena? Christians who have taken the book of Jonah seriously will recognize that if it's true that the more we understand God's grace shown to us as sinners, the more we'll reflect God's compassionate character in our hearts and lives, then it has to show up on our Facebook feeds, at the water cooler, and in the pews when it comes to politics. It has to. EBF, this is just one arena. We'll recall to sound out the idols that still haunt our hearts. They're there. The truth is, we didn't check our idols at the door when we became Christ followers. We smuggled them in and often looked to them rather than the one true God to rule our hearts and lives. And what's happening in politics is in part revealing that. But thankfully, the Lord is graciously at work in our hearts like he was in Jonah's, sending storms and saving pagans who have done absolutely nothing to deserve it in order, in part, to cast down our idols once again and show us that he is the only God truly worthy of our worship. And as for Jonah, he still has more idols to be sounded out before we're all said and done. Thankfully, while Jonah's anger was unveiled in the first part of this passage, God's unrelenting compassion is made plain in the second part. See, when we look at verses 5 through 11 again, we're ultimately confronted with a scene that in some ways is is quite comical. Really, there's some comedic relief going on here. After God's probing question, Jonah has clearly decided here to take his toys and go home. You can almost see him stomping out of the city, huffing and puffing in dramatic protest of God's unwavering compassion. He's throwing down the gauntlet, challenging God of all possible competitors to a battle of the wills. Right? Now, given all that we've seen God powerfully do in this book, who do you think is going to win the arm wrestling match that Jonah is asking for? The comic relief continues as Jonah attempts on his own power to construct a makeshift booth or tent just outside the city. And the text tells us he was waiting to see what would become of the city. He's seeming to challenge God here by insisting 
via his remaining presence, that some other fate ought to have overcome this evil city than the one God has decided upon. And the Lord? Well, the Lord continues to beautifully demonstrate the very grace and patience that Jonah is protesting. He says, okay, Jonah, let me give you an object lesson to help you understand who I am and who you are by comparison. And just like that, just like before, when God had appointed a great fish, now in verse 6 he appoints a plant. What kind of plant? We don't exactly know, just like we don't exactly what kind of fish it was in chapter 2. But we get the idea from the context here, right? This was a plant with some pretty good capacity for providing shade, which is exactly what Jonah would have needed east of Nineveh, which was basically desert. Now we know Jonah's happy with it, right? In fact, it says he was exceedingly glad because of the plant. The same exact expression that was used in verse 1 to characterize Jonah's anger. And perhaps the high watermark of Jonah's ridiculousness, he's gone from being, being exceedingly angry because of Nineveh's salvation to being exceedingly glad because of a plant. So why was Jonah so glad about this plant? Well, he seems to have made a makeshift hut, right, from twigs and wood, whatever he could gather, but this popsicle stand is not going to provide the kind of shade that he needs, right? But this plant provided full-on shade that saved him from his discomfort, the text says. Now, remember that for the narrator of Jonah, there aren't any throwaway lines, right? We talked about the meanings and the details. And that word has actually shown up already in the book. The word that our translations have as discomfort in this verse is the same Hebrew word that in previous verses was translated as the disaster that the Ninevites were saved from when they repented from their sin. Same word. God is giving Jonah a taste on a micro level of the kind of salvation that he can provide from discomfort small and disasters big or choose not to provide. So just as quickly in verse 7, we see God sovereignly appointing two more agents to continue the object lesson and reverse Jonah's good fortune. The first was a worm who also was exceedingly glad about the plant and showed it by devouring it and causing it to wither and losing its capacity to provide the luscious shade that was over Jonah. Meanwhile, the sun was rising. The day was getting hotter and hotter by the minute. And that would have been enough for Jonah to take on. I don't know what kind of sunscreen they had back in those days, but I'm betting it was pretty low SPF, so he's, he's in trouble. But on top of the blazing sun, God also appointed a scorching east wind a wind that would have blown right off the desert and brought in the kind of aridness that would take the life right out of a person. Imagine the most refreshing sea breeze you've ever felt in your life and then reverse it into the most exhausting experience in the elements you could ever imagine, and that's what Jonah was experiencing. And by this point in the story, we, we could have predicted his response without even being told, right? His refreshing shade and comfort situation is taken away. And what does Jonah do? Big surprise. He wishes he was dead again. And, and thus we learn even more about Jonah's idolatry, right? Which also seemed to include comfort being held at a premium. Jonah's saying, if I can't be comfortable and avoid suffering, then life is just not worth living. And all the while, 
God is still graciously at work, tenderly trying to address his idolatrous heart. After the divinely appointed object lesson has come and gone, God again comes right up alongside Jonah and reengages him in dialogue. This time the question is, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Or to put it another way, do you have any right to be angry over the plant? Again, God's questions cut to the heart of the matter. And what is Jonah's response to this apt inquiry? As the NIV puts it, Jonah insists, it is right, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. I mean, this, this just sounds like a timber tantrum now, right? I mean, just envision Jonah with his arms crossed, his brow furrowed, acting like a two-year-old who's had his blankie taken away. And again, the death wish. You know, what's up with the death wish, Jonah? <laughs> it's another indicator that what's going on here is Jonah's heart idol is once again being threatened, right? He'd rather die than live in a world where God doesn't care for him and comfort him the way he thinks God should. Now, after all that, to engage in a little thought experiment here, if you were God, how would you have responded to Jonah in this moment? How would you respond to this disrespectful, pouting prophet after all of this? Well, I might have been tempted to say something like, you'd like to die, would you? That can be arranged. Our merciful and compassionate God shows infinite patience once again, tenderly providing even more gracious instruction. In these last two verses, we see God bringing out the meaning of his object lesson as it relates to the mercy that he had recently shown to the great city of Nineveh. Okay? And essentially, God sets forth an argument for Jonah to ponder, and it's a how much more type of argument. You guys remember your logic class? A how much more type of argument, which argues that if things are true in the lesser case, how much more are they true in the greater case, right? So in this argument, a comparison is made between the much lesser case of what happens to a plant giving shade to Jonah and the much greater case of the fate of an entire city filled with people made in God's image. So comparison number one, while Jonah has only escaped discomfort by experiencing the grace of the plant's shade, the Ninevites have escaped disaster by experiencing the grace of God that enabled them to repent of their sins and not come under judgment. Oh, excuse me, repent of their sin and not be destroyed. Comparison number two, while Jonah has only escaped discomfort by experiencing the grace of the plant's shade, the Ninevites have escaped disaster by experiencing the grace of God in, in not being under their judgment. And comparison number three, while Jonah's plant is small, short-lived, and of little significance morally and spiritually, Nineveh is a huge city full of humans living their lives and making decisions that are of great significance morally and spiritually. In short, these comparisons start piling up to say something like this. Jonah, you have concern, you look kindly upon, you pity and lament losing a plant you had absolutely no control over, which is ultimately a transitory thing that's here today and gone tomorrow. If that's true, shouldn't I, God, have concern, look kindly upon, take pity on that which is so much greater value than this puny plant? 
Should I not care for something which I value so dearly? Especially when I see it in such a place of deep need and unlike you, I can actually do something about it. And so by the end, we hear God's message loud and clear. If Jonah could look with regret upon a measly plant which did, he did nothing to cultivate, right? How much more should God look with pity upon a city filled with myriads of pitiable people whom he created and who are of infinitely more value than any plant or any one human's comfort? And if you're wondering why in the world God at the end would even appeal to the cattle or animals at the end of his question, did you see that? Well, the short answer is, it serves as yet one more indicator of the distorted values of Jonah's heart, almost as an exclamation point at the end of God's argument here. For not only is it true that Jonah seems by his actions to value plants and his comfort more than precious human beings, he also seems to value these things even more than the animal life, which would also have been at stake in the fate of Nineveh even though animals were known then as they are now of much greater value and significance than plants. And with that final oomph, the dramatic story of the reluctant prophet comes to an end, not with a bang, but with a lingering question that goes unanswered. For the first time in the book, Jonah is without response. God's question has perhaps undone him. And though we long to know how Jonah responded, whether he he finally understood the error of his ways and repented, or whether he continued to kick against the goads for the rest of his life, we're left with a silence, left to ponder, and left to turn attention to our own hearts. For as we've said over and over again, we are Jonah. How he responded is in one sense much less important than how we respond. And this, brothers and sisters, is where we must allow the book of Jonah to sting us. We must be willing to bring our own hearts under examination and ask whether our character reflects the gracious and compassionate character of God and be willing to repent where it does not. And EBF, if if we're brutally honest with ourselves, there is a lot that we have in common with this boneheaded prophet that we've been following for the last few weeks. I mean, let's just start with the fact that we gather for worship in a city that's just less than the population of ancient Nineveh. In the last verse of the book, God just pours out his heart for a city of 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left. That is, they, they don't have any moral or spiritual sense about them. They're completely lost without God and without hope in the world. Could there be any better description of Evanston than that? The university community that we live in full of hedonistic college students and working hard professionals, many, many more, so many of whom are convinced that God is the absolute last thing that they need. The questions inherently posed to us, are we going to demonstrate the same love and grace and compassion to Evanston? that God already has for this city of ours? Are we going to care about the approximately 75,000 here in Evanston the way God cares about them? Or are we going to be like Jonah, 
who sought to withhold the grace of God from those he considered undeserving enemies, preferring to selfishly hog the good news of the gospel rather than share it freely with those who, like us, so desperately need it. EBF, this is where we're called to be like our Lord Jesus Christ, who was so generous with the riches that he had been given and whose harshest words were for the religious types who had no compassion in their hearts for sinners in need of their Savior, for those who didn't know their right hand from their left. In fact, there's some amazing parallels that folks who have studied Jonah have pointed out here. One of them is that there's a lot of resonances between this story and the parable that Jesus told in Luke 15 about the lost or prodigal son. We tend to think that the lost son is the one who ran away and squandered the inheritance, right? But by the end of the parable, that son is back in the father's arms, having repented of his sin and embraced his father's gracious forgiveness, while the older son is out pouting in the field. Hmm. Sound familiar? It sounds like Jonah. And just like Jonah, the parable of the prodigal son is open-ended. We don't know whether the older brother ever repents or even recognizes that he has anything to repent of and ask forgiveness for. So who is the lost son after all? See, at the beginning of Luke 15, Jesus makes it clear who the parable is targeting. The Pharisees who refused to celebrate that sinners and tax collectors were coming home. It's that same pharisaical heart that was manifesting in Jonah way back then. And it's the same pharisaical heart that we struggle with today. And that Jonah's story is intended to expose and rebuke. It's a dangerous heart condition to have. I say dangerous because another parable, the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, Jesus makes it clear that when we fail to forgive others, to show them the same forgiveness and compassion that we've been shown by God, it actually reveals the stunning and disconcerting truth that we've actually never really understood and received the saving grace of God in the first place. It's a chilling parable, actually. And it begs the question, do we have Jesus' heart of grace and compassion for the lost and broken and hurting in Evanston? Or do we have the pharisaical heart that Jesus spent so much time trying to expose for the idolatrous religiosity that it was? Because here's the deal. EBF, we, we can talk about being a church that loves our city with the love of Christ, but until we repent of any older brother, pharisaical, Jonah-like heart attitude, that's all it's going to be, empty talk. To reach Evanston, this city that God cares so much for and desires that all within it would repent and believe and not perish but have eternal life, we're going to need to start by examining our own angry, embittered, and idolatrous hearts and repent where those hearts don't conform to the heart of our gracious and compassionate Lord. So where do we start in that? That's tough work, right? It feels like, whoa, okay. How do we do that? I want us to start with a very simple question. It's from Mark Dever, who asked this. Think about this. Really pause and hear this. 
is there any coldness in my heart toward the things which God's heart is warm, the things for which he shows love, mercy, and compassion? To boil that question down, it's like asking, where is my heart far from God's heart? We should be able to ask that question of ourselves and of people who know us and that we can trust with a willingness to really hear the hard answer as it's shared in our ethos communities and beyond. Why? Because we're really committed to the idea that the more we truly understand God's grace shown to us as sinners, the more we will reflect God's compassionate character in our life and heart. And when we've done that investigative work and what we've found there is not so good, <laughs> what we've found there is that we failed once again we're like Jonah again and again and again, when that happens, go on to remember the greatest indicator of God's gracious and compassionate heart in this book. God continues to call and pursue his reluctant, even rebellious prophet again and again and again. EBF, it's wonderful news, is it not? That our God continues to call and pursue his people even in their disobedience and hard-heartedness and anger and frustration and idolatry and sin. He does it again and again, all the way home. So as you plumb the depths of your heart and find the Jonah-like muck and mire within, remember that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save Jonas, of whom you and I are the worst. And all of God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, we need help to hear this word as we should, to see that we are Jonah in all of our idolatry and sin, that you so graciously and compassionately reached out and sent your Son to die on our behalf, to take our penalty in our place, that we might have life, that we might repent again and again and grow in righteousness and grow in Christ-likeness. Help us, Lord, to really hear the message of this book, take it to heart, and ask that question, where are our hearts far from yours? Give us light by your Spirit regarding that very question, and give us grace to act and repent appropriately. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.